When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As strange as this story may seem, this is a work of nonfiction with no invented dialogue. Every reenactment you hear comes from government files, archives, diaries, letters, newspaper articles, books, or trial testimony. He had been waiting for that morning, dreading it, aware it couldn't be stopped. An hour ago, he was eating breakfast, and now he was chasing her through Eden Park. He had learned she wanted to kill him, and his brain had wandered to a shadowy land, somewhere between sanity and madness. For two years, he had not been right. Friends and associates would attest to the difference, a stark split between then and now. He had long referred to himself in the third person, but such declarations became more frequent. He rambled incessantly about love and betrayal and revenge. He announced with unwavering conviction that people from all corners wished him dead, including his wife Imogene, who had burned his world to the ground. His little emo, his truest and sweetest, his prime minister, his gem. And finally, there Imogene was, in Eden Park, close enough to touch. She sprinted faster, her black silk dress like a waving flag. He accelerated, everything but the sight of her falling away. They were even now, face to face beneath a gazebo, the autumn air just beginning to darken the leaves. He heard her voice, a sound that once upon a time made him mad with a boundless and wild joy. Between them rose a glint of silver and cream, a pearl-handled revolver. I'm Abba Kaler, and this is Remus, the Mad Bootleg King. In 
In 2019, under my old name, Karen Abbott, I published The Ghost of Eden Park, a New York Times bestselling book about a bootlegger named George Remus. You might have seen him as a character on Boardwalk Empire, the hit HBO series about Prohibition-era gangsters. He was usually used as comic relief, the eccentric genius who spoke of himself in the third person. Why the f*** would anyone ever go to Cincinnati? Remus finds you petty and resentful. Well, Remus can go f*** himself. But if you looked beyond these one-liners, it became clear that Remus was smarter and had a much more dramatic life than his more famous contemporary, Al Capone. Remus was also much more successful. If you took an illegal drink a century ago, the odds are that your booze came, in one way or another, through George Remus. At the height of his empire, he owned 35% of all the alcohol in the United States. He was the king of the bootleggers, despite never once drinking a drop of alcohol himself. Unlike Capone, Remus considered himself to be a gentleman, someone who aspired to and was worthy of high society. He was pursued by one scheming woman who coveted his wealth and by one very powerful woman who wanted to bring him down. The year 1920 marked the birth of modern America. The U.S. had money and people were eager to spend it on new telephones and cars and radios, on motion pictures in scandalous fashion. With the Great War over, people were more hedonistic. Women dared to act in unladylike ways. They danced to jazz music in their shortened hemlines. They drank in secret and smoked in public. Flappers invented their own language, including a mysterious definition for the word flapper, a woman with a jitney body and limousine mind. Newspaper headlines warned about a national, quote, flapper menace. Everyone gleefully discarded old customs and manners. Preachers ranted about the world going to perdition. A delicious sense of danger hung in the air. Nearly everyone, in some way or another, was involved in bootlegging. A double amputee war veteran boasted that he could carry 36 pints in his artificial arm and leg. Tricked out walking canes hid glass vials filled with booze. A Brooklyn-based inventor introduced flasks that looked like leather-bound books. A raid on a seemingly innocent soda parlor in Helena, Montana, uncovered squirt guns with a two-drink capacity. Bootlegging boats fired liquor-filled torpedoes onto the beaches of Long Island. Specialized liquor submarines raised and lowered out of sight. Seagoing tugboats outfitted with secret compartments hid enough liquor for 30 New Year's Eve parties. Women were the most effective smugglers of all. Prohibition agents, most of whom were male, were often either too decorous or too nervous to search women. And in some states, it was illegal to search women at all. Women took full advantage. They hid pints of booze inside of false rubber breasts. They tucked enormous flasks beneath fur coats and called them bootleggers life preservers. Even my own grandmother, born in 1918, did a little bootlegging. She once told me of her first memory. Her older sister, a proud flapper, tucked small vials of whiskey into my grandmother's knickers and sent her to make deliveries to friends. Virtually overnight, prohibition made ordinary citizens into criminals. George Remus saw himself as the very embodiment of the coming new decade, a harbinger of its grandest excesses and darkest delusions. Nothing but the best would do for Remus. The grandest houses, the poshest decorations, the sleekest automobiles, but it would never be enough. 
His is the quintessential American success story and a vivid glimpse into the dark side of the American dream. This dream was still decades away when George Remus arrived in America in 1883, a five-year-old kid who made the long journey from Germany. He, his two sisters, and his mother joined his father, Frank, who had already settled in Chicago. It was a city of smoke and soot, of ambition and despair, of unrelenting change, a city engaged in constant reinvention, just like Remus himself. Their family life was chaotic and violent. Frank spent his nights at the corner saloon. He became a mean and abusive alcoholic. Remus was in the eighth grade when Frank developed rheumatism and could no longer work. So Remus quit school and took a job at his uncle's pharmacy on Chicago's west side, earning $5 per week. The job was an escape. It also laid the groundwork for Remus's future empire. He called himself a druggist devil boy and discovered that he had a gift. He could sell anything to anyone under any circumstance, no matter how outrageous his claims or unorthodox his delivery. At age 19, he bought the drugstore from his uncle and began peddling all manner of questionable concoctions, including a complexion remedy containing mercury and a nerve tonic with a dash of a poisonous hallucinogenic plant called henbane. Remus welcomed confrontation, even relished it. He had grown to be a stout fellow, only five feet six inches tall, but over 200 pounds. Despite his weight, he was remarkably strong and agile. He once argued with a customer who complained that one of Remus's medicines had scalded his chest. Remus dragged the man outside and settled the matter by slapping him in the face. <clears throat> When a group of women gathered at his drugstore to protest what they called his poisonous potions, Remus doused them with ammonia. <laughs> Seeking more money and prestige, Remus began studying law and quickly became one of Chicago's preeminent and most eccentric defense attorneys. He treated the courtroom as his personal stage leaping and pacing and prowling the length of the jury box. During the cross-examination of his clients, he tore at what was left of his hair, sobbing and howling. His detractors nicknamed him the Weeping, Crying Remus, but his admirers called him the Napoleon of the Chicago Bar. Remus was as inventive as he was dramatic. He once defended a husband accused of poisoning his wife. During his closing argument, Remus raised the bottle of poison so that the jury got a clear look at the skull and crossbones on its label. There's been a lot of talk of poison in this case, but it has been a lot of piffle. Look! As the jury gasped, he swallowed the poison and continued with his closing argument, aware that they all expected him to drop dead. When he didn't, the jury returned with an acquittal. Only later did Remus reveal his trick. He had drunk an elixir earlier in the day that neutralized the poison. In another case, Remus defended a wealthy man named W.C. Ellis, also accused of killing his wife. He decided on an unusual and risky strategy. Ellis, Remus argued, was suffering from a brainstorm of transitory insanity when he stabbed his wife's throat with a pen. Insane while committing the crime, but instantly sane again the moment she died. His closing argument began in the afternoon and went on for hours, ending late at night. He paced, he wept, he sweat through his clothes. 
Gentlemen of the jury, I know you cannot believe what the prosecutor has told you. That such a murder was the work of a man in his right mind. That a sane husband would so wantonly destroy the woman at whose side he had spent so many happy years that all the kisses he gave to her were shams, masking murderous intent. The jury returned with a guilty verdict, but one tempered by compromise. Ellis would not die in the electric chair as the prosecution had wished. He would not even spend the rest of his life in jail, instead only serving a sentence of 15 years. This meant that Ellis would serve only eight and a half years, with time deducted for good behavior. Remus considered it a win, and it was a case he would remember for the rest of his life. Remus was savvy, but he was also strange. One of my favorite details I unearthed while researching Remus was the fact that he did not wear underwear. Indeed, he was pathologically opposed to wearing underwear. According to the medical doctrine of the 1920s, this quirk was a cause for great alarm. It indicated an unsound mind. While Remus's legal career flourished, his home life floundered. He had married his childhood sweetheart, Lillian Clough, when he was just 17. Together they had a daughter, Romola, whom Remus doted on, but over the years, their union had become strained. When Lillian first filed for divorce in 1918, she charged him with cruelty, pure malice, and a habit of, quote, coming home early in the morning, a phrase that actually appears on the official documents. They reconciled, as Remus knew that a divorce would be expensive. But another woman would appear in Remus's life, a woman who seemed worth the trouble and expense, a woman who became the fulcrum that would allow him to pivot and rise to even greater heights. Augusta Imogene Holmes worked as a dust girl in his office. At night, as she swept the floors and tidied Remus's desk, they commiserated about their unhappy marriages. Her husband stayed out all night with other women, spent all their money, and refused to care for their 11-year-old daughter, Ruth. Remus saw something special in the 35-year-old Imogene. She, too, had grown up poor and was used to hard work. Remus thought she was stunning, with dark hair and eyes, and a voluptuous figure better suited to the bustles and billowing sleeves of decades past. She had an intelligence and ambition that matched his own. He sold himself to Imogene as only he could. She should let him handle her divorce pro bono, let him pay the rent on her apartment, let him buy her dresses and jewels and give her an allowance, $100 checks to spend as she wished. I'll rescue you from the gutter and make a lady out of you. Imogene had sold herself to Remus, too. She was malleable, receptive to his schemes, eager to mold herself into his ideal. She and her daughter Ruth would be his new family. She would keep his darkest secrets and uphold all of his lies. She would tell no one that Remus had always been terrified of ghosts. She would not divulge that his brother had died in an insane asylum. She would not mention that Remus never officially became an American citizen. She would never repeat the disturbing story behind Remus's father's death, that his mother had bashed his father's head in during a barroom brawl, and that his dad died on the way to the hospital. Remus had then locked his mother in the attic for three days to keep her from speaking with the coroner, protecting her until the investigation was finished. 
Remus's wife Lillian filed for divorce a second and final time. In her petition, she once again accused Remus of cruelty, claiming he frequently beat, punched, struck, choked, and kicked her. Remus agreed to a generous settlement and moved out of their home for good. And rather than defend himself in the press, he allowed Imogene to do it. He is a perfect gentleman, and anything his wife says to the contrary is false. The trouble with modern wives is this, they don't know how to treat their husbands. A husband should be given all the rope he wants. He will never hang himself. But to this defense, Imogene added a disturbing allegation that Remus hadn't counted on. She told the press that Remus, on several occasions, had ended his affair with her and ordered her to stay away from his office and home. But Imogene had persisted anyway. She followed Remus down Clark Street during the day and lurked outside his windows at night. Remus. Calling his name, she had flashed a gun and insisted that they were meant to be together. Remus. The insane tension between them would ultimately lead to the most shocking trial of the Jazz Age. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the 1920s rolled in, America was reinventing itself, and Remus vowed he would do the same, discarding any piece of his past that did not fit his grand vision of the future. He included his legal career in this evaluation. He noticed his docket had filled with a new type of defendant, men charged with violating the Volstead Act, which prohibited the manufacture, sale, or transportation of alcohol to, from, or within the United States. Remus considered the law to be unreasonable and nearly impossible to enforce, and many of his clients were proving him right. They were making astonishing profits from what Remus called petty hip pocket bootlegging. These bootleggers paid him the retainers in cash and never complained about fines imposed by the court, no matter how steep. Remus called these clients, quote, men without any brains at all, and if they were succeeding, then he had a chance to clean up too. But a local bootlegging operation would not satisfy Remus. He dreamed bigger. He believed he could build a large-scale operation, something that would have national and even international reach. Remus scoured the Volstead Act thoroughly and found the loophole he needed in Title II, Section 6, which said that with a doctor's prescription, 
it was legal to buy and use liquor for, quote, medicinal purposes. It was a popular provision, as you can imagine. Within six months of the ratification of the 18th Amendment, 15,000 doctors applied for permits. Dentists followed suit. Even veterinarians took advantage. After all, who knew when Spot or Fluffy might need a shot of Old Fitzgerald? Remus described this loophole with his customary flowery language. This is the greatest comedy, the greatest perversion of justice that I have ever known of in any civilized country in the world. Remus saw his chance. As a licensed pharmacist, Remus had the knowledge necessary to exploit the law on a national scale. As a criminal defense attorney, he understood the mindset and machinations of the underworld. As someone who'd never consumed a single ounce of alcohol, he could view the liquor business objectively. And as a risk taker, he craved the thrill and excitement of outwitting not only his competitors, but also the federal government. He devised a plan. He would close his Chicago law practice and move to Cincinnati, a strategic location, as most of the country's pre-prohibition bonded whiskey was stored close to the city. He would buy several distilleries filled with that whiskey, as well as wholesale drug companies to use as a front. With federal withdrawal permits, he could remove whiskey from his distilleries and, in theory, sell it on the medicinal market. Up to this point, his entire plan was perfectly legal. Here came the illegal and ingenious part. He would organize a transportation company and arrange for his own employees to hijack his own trucks, thereby diverting all of that technically legal medicinal whiskey into the illicit market at any price he named. Essentially, he would rob Remus to pay Remus. He called this massive octopus of an enterprise the circle. To underscore his own importance, Remus began referring to himself in the third person. Remus is in the whiskey business, and Remus is the biggest man in the business. Cincinnati is the American mecca for good liquor, and America has to come to Remus to get it. In June 1920, on their way to Cincinnati, Remus and Imogene stopped in Newport, Kentucky to get married, with Imogene's daughter Ruth as their witness. At Imogene's urging, Remus bought a grand mansion in Cincinnati's wealthiest neighborhood, Price Hill. Remus bought the home for $75,000, $1.3 million in today's money, setting a record for a residential sale in Cincinnati. It was only a fraction of the amount Remus had stashed in a local bank under an alias. They planned extensive renovations. They would build a baseball field in the backyard for neighborhood kids. The house would include an indoor swimming pool done in the style of a Roman bath. And, planning to strike awe into his high society guests, Remus began collecting precious artifacts, including a signed sketch of George Washington worth more than $800,000 in today's money. And until the renovations were finished, George, Imogene, and Ruth would stay in the Sinton Hotel, Cincinnati's poshest lodgings. Imogene saw the mansion on Price Hill as a monument to their new start and status, a grandiose way to blot out the awful memories of their past. Remus and Imogene hoped to befriend Cincinnati's most famous citizens, 
including former President and the current Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, William Howard Taft. They were floating on happiness, or so Remus thought. He was wildly attracted to Imogene, but also sought her opinions about business. He gave her a nickname that signaled his respect, calling her the Prime Minister. Imogene, in turn, gave Remus a nickname of his own, Daddy. Remus surprised his new bride by putting the deed to the mansion in Imogene's name. It was one of many decisions he would come to regret. On this date, November 17, 1927, this session of the Criminal Division of Common Pleas Court in Hamilton County will come to order. I call A.W. Brockway to the stand. When did you first become acquainted with Imogene Remus? I would say 1917. How did you become acquainted with her at that time? Well, we were putting on a great drive of washing machines and electric ironers, and she came onto the floor for the purpose of buying one. Did you ever have any conversation with her during that period of time about George Remus? <clears throat> on several occasions, she told me that he was a good guy, that she would get what he had, that she was going to nick him. She said that she was going to roll him for his role. Now, those were her words. She told me she'd get what he had, and she'd show him how to get more. She said she'd marry him if she had to, but that she didn't want to. Next time on Remus, the Mad Bootleg King. Stick him up high. Pull your triggers. Shoot and if you do, you'll never live to tell the tale. Remus, the Mad Bootleg King is a co-production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. It's hosted by me, Abbott Kaler. Chuck Reese and I wrote the show. Our producer is Miranda Hawkins. Our senior producer is Jessica Metzger. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Sound design and mix by Chris Childs. Elise McCoy composed original music. Additional scoring by Chris Childs. Voices in this episode provided by Ben Bolin, Lauren Vogelbaum, Noel Brown, Matt Frederick, and Jonathan Sleep. Special thanks to John Higgins from CuriosityStream and the team at CDM Studios in New York. If you're a fan of the podcast, please give it a review in your podcast app. You can also check out other Curiosity podcasts to learn about history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, what's good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.